I want to get into God's Word, a brand new series with you that I'm titling Monsters. So take your Bible or your Bible app. See, I, I got to share something before I actually get into the text of Scripture with you, because church to me has been a journey. I was raised in the Catholic Church. I was raised very religious. Uh, Mom used to get me all dressed up in my plaid. We had some plaid things going on back then, too, and a little tie that clipped on. I didn't do a real tie back in those days, so Mom clipped a tie on me. And we went to church, and I was a very religious boy. Uh, and then I became a Christian out of religion, and then Jesus became much more real to me, right from the get-go, right from the beginning. And so that journey in the church has been a long one for me, almost 32 years. Wow. 32 years of being around Christians, being around the church, in leadership, and all of that. And so uh, what burns me and what concerns me is that church services become nothing more than sitting passively watching something unfold. Some of that is modern man uh, taking artificial ingredients and putting it into the church. So what I've done in my journey has been is to go back to the organic church, to go back to the first century and try to look at that and go, God, how did your church operate back then? And so the church operated much more like a family. This setup here, and this is why harvest groups are so important, this setup with rows looking at the back of the person's head behind you or in front of you, uh, is not healthy for a church. So it's taken me a lot of years to try to analyze this and try to fight against it. And so I, I'm still on a crusade to make sure that when Christians come together, we are a family, that when we come together, how much larger we get, we're not sure, but that we are interacting, we are participating in the service. You're not to watch me passively. You're not to watch Scott and the team passively. You're supposed to be actively involved in one another's life in the service. Does that make any sense? So we have some brothers and sisters that go through some stuff. They're in, they're in really the deep waters and the dark night of the soul. Uh, one of those is Kelly Jennison, whose father passed away this past week, went to heaven. He knew Jesus, hallelujah, right? He knew Jesus. Isn't that a good thing? There should be a, a huge hallelujah for that one. Come on. That makes all the difference. Let me just tell you that right now. It makes all the difference when somebody knows Jesus, and that's why you need to know him if you don't know him. But Kelly's dad went to heaven this past week, and Family really needs a lot of prayer. God is showing up there in very profound and powerful ways. He's doing something. He's at work. And he's at work most often in our valleys, our pits, and our prisons. He's most often seen as a real, a real God in our, in our dilemmas, in our tragedies, in our trials. So Kelly, we're going to pray for Kelly, and I can't quite see where he's at because it's dark. Kelly's over here. It's not dark. It's the lights are in my eyes. So well, here's what I want you to do. I want some people to get out of their chair and go over and surround Kelly. So if you start moving, start moving. There should be people moving already. You might not know who he is. It doesn't matter. He's your brother in Christ. Stay right there, Kelly. We're going to lay hands. Can we have some people over here? Good. Come on over here. This is going to be a stretch for people, but this is what the church does. We lay hands on people and also for Jen. This is not an easy road for Kelly, right, Kelly? Has it been hard? And Kelly, he looks like a real tough guy, and he is a tough guy, but he's, he's a teddy bear if you get to know him, so he's got the really intimidating goatee thing going, but if you get to know Kelly, he's a really soft-hearted, wonderful man that loves the Lord, wants more of Jesus all the time, and now he's facing some things in his life that is very hard. So these people are laying hands on the rest of us, if you want to extend a hand over here, not that there's power coming out of our fingertips or anything, but we're just identifying brother, uh, this brother and his wife and the kids. God, we pray in Jesus' mighty name 
that you would continue to do incredibly awesome things. You're uniting family members that haven't been close for a lot of years. God, you're doing something through the death of Kelly's dad that only you could have orchestrated because you're an all-wise God. You are providentially moving things, moving people around so that you're going to get the most glory and these people are going to be that much better, that much stronger, that much closer to you. Talk about the reality of God in a very difficult situation. You're manifesting yourself now. We pray for our brother Kelly and Jen. We pray for the kids. We pray for grandkids. We pray for family members, uncles, aunts. We pray for his mom. God, we pray that you continue to show yourself powerful on their behalf. We pray, God, for Kelly's heart and this loss and the separation from his dad physically. God, that you would carry him through the grief, help him to sense your presence even now, the power of God, the spirit of the Lord working in and through him even now. And so, God, we thank you as a church that you're hearing our prayers. We thank you as a church that you do listen to Harvest Reading, that you do walk here. We love our brother, and we're with him, and we will walk with him through this. In Jesus' mighty name, all God's people say, amen. amen. This is what we're going to do more and more as our church services unfold. And so uh, I'm on a crusade. I have to admit that I'm on a crusade for the church to look a little bit more organic, not so much institutionalized, because it's very easy to sit in a chair and leave not impacted. So join a harvest group. There's a table out in the lobby. Join a harvest group. It's going to be important for you and your growth and for the church. I took an allergy pill this morning. It's one of those non-drowsy ones, amen? <clears throat> Some of you get your greatest naps when I'm preaching, but it wouldn't be good if I'm napping when I'm trying to preach, right? I've titled this series, Monsters. And as you know, at the end of this month, October 31st, millions of people will be celebrating Halloween. October 31st, Halloween. In fact, 180 million people will celebrate in our country alone Halloween. About $9 billion will be spent on Halloween. That's a little chunk of change, huh? I want you to start uh, right off the bat. I'm not a huge fan of Halloween, personally. My wife and I don't celebrate it. I haven't celebrated it for a long time. There's a lot going on in Halloween that's demonic, warlocks, demons, sacrificial uh, altars that are laying people on them and killing them. This is happening in our world today, and it happens around Halloween. And so it is the highest day for witchcraft and demonism and all that kind of stuff. And so, um, but you know what? When I was growing up, I didn't think about all that. I thought about two things primarily. Uh, can you guess what thing was huge on my list when I was, yeah, hallelujah and amen. And so when it came to candy, I was a master. I was a master. I would get my dad's pillowcase or a pillowcase and I would go around about three or 400 houses and collect candy. And if I didn't get enough, I'd steal it from the little kids. Amen. Come on. So a sugar addiction was very real in my life at a very young age. I can remember some of the classic candy like bottle caps. I don't know if you remember bottle caps. I mean, where did that come from? Can you imagine some guy just like chewing on a bottle cap and he thought, hey, this would make good candy, you know? It's like bottle caps. They're like sour candy and, and they look like bottle caps. How about Pop Rocks? What are Pop Rocks? Think about that. Some of you guys were high on Pop Rocks, right? So you put these rocks in your mouth and they, I mean, they're not real rocks, but how did they get the idea? Did some guy say, I'm going to put some rocks in my mouth and see what happens, you know? Hey, this could be a good candy. It's just, it's crazy the amount of uh, effort and the amount of money and all the things that are happening around Halloween. There's another thing that was 
really important to me as a, a young person. Now, I wasn't a Christian. I was unredeemed. My family was unredeemed. And so we celebrated Halloween like nobody's business. And so we were professional Halloween celebrators in our home when I was growing up. So the second would be Monsters. Monsters was really important to me. In fact, I would watch the Dr. Shock show. Does anybody remember Dr. Shock? Seriously? <laughs> wow. We're at the same age, you can tell. And so um, Dr. Shock, I would watch. These are the classic monsters. I remember at Halloween and other times I would take toilet paper and I'd say to my brothers, hey, can you wrap me in this? I want to look like a mummy, you know? And so it was just one of those childhood memories. When it comes to monsters, though, uh, there's some other monsters I want to try to identify with you, and you'll be familiar with some of the faces that you'll see behind me. Let's try to go through these. You tell me if you think you know who these monsters might be or people that we refer to as monsters. Can we show this first one here? Bring them up. No, there should be some pictures. Any pictures? There's nothing there? Nothing. Sorry about that. I don't know what happened. Anyway, here's the ones I had on there. Mussolini. I'm not sure if you're familiar with you. Remember him, Mussolini, the Italian dictator? How about Saddam Hussein? Monsters. How about Hitler? Wouldn't you just hate for him to be your uncle, right? Or your dad. Think about that. How about Manson? Charles Manson, who passed away not that long ago. These are all monsters. These are men, and there's some women in history that you would look at and go, wow, these are monsters. These are people that are cruel. These are people that you don't want to mess with. They were killers. Uh, they were evil men. They did things that were just indescribable in vileness towards people. Monsters. I want to look at four monsters with you this coming month. Each week, there'll be a different monster. I've titled the first message here, When Regrets Become Your Frankenstein. When Regrets Become Your Frankenstein. So let's talk about Frankenstein a little bit here. Are you familiar with him? Back in the day, if you've seen Boris Karloff's classic movie on Frankenstein, it's about Mary Shelley, who in the 1800s was uh, a woman who was a writer, and she was being challenged to write uh, what would be uh, a competition, the classic horror story. She had visited Frankenstein's castle, and so she had a dream of uh, an alchemist who was conducting some experiments and he created this monster. And this monster was Frankenstein's monster. And then after Frankenstein had created his monster, he regretted it. He regretted it. When does your regrets become your Frankenstein? And how do you defeat this monster? How can you, once and for all, live free from the regrets that you've been battling with? And this Frankenstein has been roaming in your life, coming close to you at times, in your home, in your mind. How can you be free from that? It's the title of the message. I want to go to 2 Corinthians. So take your Bible, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I want to look at verses 1 down to verse 16. 1 down to verse 16. This is a great second letter of the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. I'm going to define regret. Here's a, de a definition. You won't see it behind me. So, and don't try to write it down. Just try to listen. Sadness and disappointment over something that has happened or has happened, especially a loss or missed opportunity. Decisions that were made and shouldn't have been made. Have you ever made a decision and you now regret that the decision that you once made 
you had made. Does anybody know what I'm talking about right here? We all do that and have done that. How about decisions that you should have made but you didn't make and then now you carry some regret? Anybody like that? You're familiar with that too, right? And how about somebody who has made a decision against you that has led your life maybe into a difficult season and, and there's some regrets because of the way that maybe you reacted or didn't react to the person that was making that decision against you and you still carry regret. Regrets are part of life. Let me give you some thoughts. You replace scenes in your mind over and over again. You replace scenes in your mind. You relive emotions. You repeat the what ifs. Have you ever been down the what if road before? Here's some backstory to 2 Corinthians. Paul had started the church. He planted it and he's raising up leaders and he is loving these people in Corinth. He eventually leaves the church, goes to Ephesus, and then the Corinthian church gets to a place of corruption and they get to a place of carnality. And Paul says about them that they're just children. And he's dealing with them throughout 1 Corinthians. It's a letter that was written from Ephesus back to the church in Corinth about their condition. And so if you read 1 Corinthians, you'll see a church that's in crisis. You'll see a church that's a mess. What's interesting is that if you read 2 Corinthians, you'll find out, and we're going to look at chapter 7, you'll find out that there were some false teachers that came from within the church. These were men that were corrupt. These were men that were slandering Paul. These were men that were trying to get the Corinthian followers to follow them, to turn away from the Apostle Paul. And they were saying things about Paul that were not accurate. They were slandering and lying about his, who he is as a person, his character and his, his qualities. And so they were battling this. And Paul was wanting desperately to maintain that loyalty of the Corinthian followers. But many of them turned against the Apostle Paul. They believed the lie. So anyway, so the Second Corinthian letter is such an important letter because you see an apostle that is really hurt. And if you've ever been betrayed before, and if you've ever been slandered before, then you'll know uh, what Paul was struggling with. And so he, he writes 2 Corinthians to reestablish his credibility, and he has to defend himself to these people that had turned on him. And so the whole letter, if you go through the whole letter and study it yourself, it's an amazing, an amazing letter, but it's heartbreaking. And so the Corinthians had betrayed Paul, made decisions that were wrong, had hurt the man who loved them so much. Take your outline here. I want to give you three ways that you can get free from Frankenstein's monster of regret. Now, don't miss this. I hope that wasn't a distraction to you. Don't let the enemy take the word of God and the seed that's going to be planted and just pluck it from your mind. Number one is revisiting the places of regret with honesty. Here's what Paul's going to do. He's going to do it from verses 1 down to verse 8. He's going to take the Corinthians right to that place. Here's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to be honest about what happened possibly years ago, maybe weeks ago, months ago, but maybe even years ago. And God's going to call you to revisit those places. And he's going to take the truth of the word of God. And you'll see how Paul does this to the Corinthians. He's going to take the truth of the word of God into that moment. Now, some of you want to stay away from those places and not revisit those places because they were so incredibly difficult. And how you do that is going to be interesting. You need the wisdom of God, so that could be something the Spirit of the Lord gives you some wisdom on how to do that, when to do that. But uh, and maybe there are conversations that could happen between us or someone that you trust 
about this place that you need to revisit and the timing of all of that and the logistics of all of that. But you're going to have to revisit it to some degree. You're going to have to take the truth of the word of God and bring it to bear on your mind and on your emotions in that place where those regrets had happened, whether they were decisions that you made, you should have made and didn't, or someone made against you and you didn't react in the way that Jesus would ask you to react. So that's number one. I want you to take your eyes to verse one of chapter seven because Paul transitions here. This is an important transition. He's building these truths that we're going to look at in these first eight verses to prove point number one uh, based on some verses back in chapter six. And I want you to see his, his thought patterns here because he needs to take all of us now back to these places of regret. And this is going to sting for some of you because in your mind right now, you're already thinking about what had happened and how it inf- impacted you. Or maybe you've been carrying around some punishment on yourself, punishing yourself because of that place that you were in and the decisions that you made. Verse 1, since we have these promises, beloved, you can see the love of Paul towards the Corinthians. Now remember, he was a hurt man, had gone through a whole lot as a result of their decisions to not follow him anymore and to hurt him and to believe the slander and the lies. But notice he says, since we have these promises, he's basing that on the verses back into chapter 16 and verse 16. Notice what agreement has the temple of God with idols. I'm in verse chapter 6, chapter 6 and verse 16. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God. Notice the relationship that Paul is reminding them of. He's having them revisit in their heart, in their mind, those places that are of regret. He's reestablishing them in this relationship that God is their God. And they shall be my people, verse 17. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. That's an important little section there to understand where he's going with chapter 7, verses 1 to 8. they got to remember that they're in a relationship. They're in an agreement with God. God is their father. God is the one who had redeemed them, who had saved them who is doing great things in their life, and then now they have turned against Paul, turned against God, linked themselves up with false teachers, and then also defiled their temple. Read 1 Corinthians if you don't know what I'm talking about, especially chapter 5. You'll see how defiled they were. So Paul's laying down this groundwork again of this relationship. He says back in verse 14 of chapter 6, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers talks about separating yourself from unbelievers. Now, if you've been raised in a fundamentalist background or a hyper-conservative background, you might have seen that verse or heard that verse preached that you need to separate yourself from unbelievers or non-Christians. You don't separate yourself from non-Christians. You try to love non-Christians, and you get close to non-Christians. So whatever was preached to you about separating yourself from non-Christians or unbelievers wasn't accurate. What Paul is talking about here. He's talking about those false teachers that had caused the Corinthians to turn against him. They were calling themselves Christians, and you need to separate yourself from them. doesn't make any sense that we're supposed to separate ourselves from the world. we got to go win the world. So the separated terminology has been so ingrained in some people's minds, it becomes a buzzword. 
we got to separate. We got to separate. We don't want to look like the world. So our hair has to look a certain way. Can't have tattoos. You got to wear certain pants. And you got to have all these rules and regulations. We got to be separated from the world. That's not what that's talking about. It's talking about separating from this, this leader that was in Corinth that was hurting the Corinthians, lying about Paul, and causing the Corinthians to turn against Paul. So he talks about this. Verse 2. Let's keep going through the first eight verses. Again, we're under point number one. So he goes on to say, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Corinthians obviously were battling with unholiness. They were doing things that were just not pure. And so Paul's going to admonish them to this place of holiness. Now verse 2, he says, make room in your hearts for us. Are you, th- are you with me there? Notice that. This is like, this is my, my grandma, is a, I have an Italian grandmother. And every time I see her, she was like, oh, give me a big hug, Chris. And she opens herself up, and I need to go in there and give my grandma a big old hug. This is what Paul's saying. I want you to open yourself up to me. Like grandma saying, just give me a hug, and she just grabs you. This is what God is wanting for the Corinthians to do with the apostle Paul again. And Paul is the one who's saying it. He's saying, I want you to open up your life to me again. They closed them off. They made decisions. They're regretting those decisions. We'll see. And now they need to get past this Frankenstein that has been part of their life. And so open yourself up to me, he says, and to us, not just Paul, but the other ones who are with Paul and his team. He goes on to say, we have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he has comforted by you. And as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me. Watch what's happening here. They're, they're, they're starting to really live in this place of regret. They revisited it because Paul's establishing this relationship once again and what had happened. Now he's starting to see some, some change going on. There's this longing and mourning for what they had done to the apostle Paul and to God. There's this zeal for me so that I rejoiced all the more. For even if I made you to grieve, verse 8, with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. I made you grieve, Paul said, with a letter. This is called the severe letter. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. He also wrote a book in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, not part of the canon. It's called the severe letter. And in that severe letter, Paul is really, really coming at them about some of the things that they were struggling with. And so as a result of the severe letter, they're reading it, and all all of a sudden this grief comes over them. Now the reason why you're not going to revisit the place so that you can get past the regret is because it's hard for you to face maybe what you did, decisions that you made, decisions that you didn't make that you were supposed to make, decisions that were made against you, and you can't revisit that, but you need to. You really need to if Frankenstein's not going to be a part of your life anymore. So here he wrote this severe letter, and it's causing them to grieve. Paul says, I do not regret it. What's he he mean by that? He doesn't regret the content that he said. 
then he says, but I do regret it. What's he talking about? He's saying, I don't regret the fact that I spoke the truth to you, but I do struggle with, wow, how did I say it? And he's running these things back through his mind. You know, did I come on a little bit too strong? Did I, and I've done that in preaching sometimes. You preach and you give your heart and you preach hard sayings like we looked at last week. And then you start to go, wow, you pull back a little bit. I don't regret the content that I spoke, but I'm regretting maybe how I said it. That's what he's struggling with. He's not saying that he's pulling back on the content of the severe letter. They needed the severe letter. And that was causing them to grieve. It was causing them to really revisit those places that they had decided to turn against the Apostle Paul. And they're going to get past their regrets. They're going to get past. You'll see that by the time we get to the end of it. In chapter 2, verse 4, is there chapter 2, verse 4 on here? Let's see if I got that on. Is it not there? 2, 4? Paul talks about being very open with his feelings, very vulnerable. He's very transparent in chapter 2, verse 4. And I think that was part of his saying, I, I, I regret it. Maybe I was a little bit too open. Maybe I was a little bit too transparent. Maybe I was a little bit too, and that, I think, is where he was talking about. That's chapter 2, verse 4. You can look at it some other time. And so here you have Paul. He says in verse 9, I rejoice. He's fired up, but he's fired up in a good way because they were grieved. They were grieved. Here's number two, not just revisit the place with honesty. You have to be honest with what happened, however long it happened ago. Number two, returning to a place of verticality. Returning to a place of verticality. This is verses 9 down to verse 12. Paul is looking at the Corinthians. He's hearing about their condition, and they're feeling really badly. It said that they were mourning. We read that. Look at verse 10. Paul said, verse 10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without what? Regret. Are you with me on that? You're still distracted by the sound effects, right? Don't let that hinder you. Come with me. Come with me. If somebody's sleeping next to you, give them a nudge. Hit them in the ribs. Do whatever you have to do. The enemy's going to try not to, to distract you. He will try to do that. For godly grief produces a repentance. Here's the returning. They're coming back to this place of living vertically again. And this is how you overcome regrets, getting back to a God-centered view. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. This is wonderful for the Corinthians. It's more wonderful for Paul because he's seeing such a change in all of their lives because of this returning to this place of vertical living. They want God again. They want God to show up in their life. This is how Frankenstein is, is destroyed once and for all. It's getting back to the place of vertical Christianity. Do I have James McDonald's quote on there? Let's look at what James said in Vertical Church. He said this. I really like this. <clears throat> Eventually, everyone vacates church where God is not obviously present or working. Getting people back to church is pointless unless God comes back first. Did you get that? That alone is so powerful. That is what vertical church is all about. Ritual church, tradition church, felt need church, emotional hype church, rules church, Bible boredom church, relevant church, and many other iterations are all horizontal substitutes for God to come down. James McDonald Vertical Church. 
Has anybody ever been in a church like that? Emotional hype church? Bible boredom church? Please don't say it's harvest spreading. That would just kill me. Here's what he's talking about here. And I, I love that quote, but he's talking about the corporate body, about the church. But the same thing needs to happen individually. Individually. And so if you want to revisit, you go back there. Then you return back to this God-centered, God-entrenched, over-the-top, full-throttle kind of Christianity. Because the reason why you're struggling with your regrets is you're too horizontal. You're too horizontal. That's why you're going to stay there with Frankenstein. But if you can get back to a verticality, if you can get back to, like, God, I'm returning back to you. I'm coming back to you, Lord. You're the one that I look to. You're the one that I follow. You're the one that I worship. You're the one that I love. If you can get back there, you'll find your regrets being overcome. Your Frankenstein will not roam in your life any longer. Verticality. Paul says you need to get back to verticality, a vertical relationship with Jesus Christ. I can remember many years ago I battled with this because a lot of my Christianity was horizontal. It was too focused on the earthly. It was too natural. It wasn't supernatural. And I remember going through those battles, and I was saying, God, there's got to be more. If you know my wife's testimony, she'll say the same thing. There's got to be more to this Christian life. Some of you need to ask that question because your Christianity is way too horizontal. And you're finding yourself defeated, and you're finding yourself, well, how come I'm not getting past this? Because you have to get back to the God-centered, God-entrenched view of your world of who God is, of your world, where you live, your family situations and dynamics. I remember struggling with that. Lisa and I both did about the same time, about 15 years ago, maybe a little longer. And we were in church, and we were ministering and serving, and we were like, this sucks. This is horrible. This isn't any good. This isn't the kind of Christianity that the Bible talks about. We got to that place where we just bowed before God, and we said, God, you've got to do something with our Christianity you got to do something in our heart. And then that's when the glory of God came down. That's when our heart was reshifted and it went vertical. And all of a sudden we're looking at God going, God, you deserve every part of who we are. We don't want religion. We, we don't want anything that smacks of, of this hyper pseudo spirituality that's in so many churches. And we were falling into that. And it's like, God, you got to do something. What was happening to us? We're going vertical. Do you know that regrets don't affect my wife and I? They don't affect us. Why don't they affect us? Because we stay vertical. Vertical. You've got to get your eyes off the horizontal. Does this make any sense? You've got to walk before God. He is quorum Deo, before the face of God. I walk before the face of God. That's how I live. That's how we live as Christians. That's what Paul's doing here. That's what the Corinthians did. They returned. They repented. They had gotten back to that place. Some of you know what I'm talking about because recently you've done the same thing. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, I'm coming alive. How, are, how am I coming alive? What, what's happening to me? You're vertical. You're not thinking about yourself as much as you used to think. You're thinking about the glory of God, right? That's number two. How about number three? We'll bring it to a close. Rejoicing in the new place of conformity. This is verse 13 down to verse 16. So you, you, you've got to revisit, go back to that place. God's going to give you the truth to help you to understand what was going on. He's going to help you to return back to that place of verticality, God-entrenched, full-throttle kind of Christianity, over-the-top kind of stuff. And, man, we need some over-the-top Christians. We need some over-the-top Christians. 
I'm telling you, there's not many of them in the Christian church. There's really not. The cool thing what's happening to Kelly and his family is because there's trauma in his family. The cool thing what's going to happen is their eyes are going to be open in ways that they have not ever had their eyes open before. And God knew that. Some of you, tragedy is coming. Trauma is coming. And God's going to allow that because he loves you. He's going to allow you to revisit some things. And he's going to help you to get back to verticality because you've drifted into horizontal Christianity. Number three, rejoicing in the place of conformity. Paul transitions yet again. If you look at verse 13, chapter 7, verse 13, there's a transition word, therefore. Paul, Paul's comforted by the Corinthians. I just love this because I'm happy for him. He says, we rejoiced. You see that back in verse 7, too. I rejoiced still more. If you look at verse 9, he says, as it is, I rejoice. Verse 16, he says, I rejoice. This is wonderful. The reason why I get so fired up about that is because I'm a pastor, and I understand when people turn on you, and I understand when people leave. I understand when people go halfway, and then you don't see them anymore. We just had somebody in our church. They went halfway. Now they're not coming to church anymore. It hurts. It hurts. It always hurts. It's sad. It's so sad. And Paul, I can understand Paul's heart. He's sad that the Corinthians had done this. But now, when people come back to the Lord and they start getting back to God and back to church and back to doing what God has called them to do, then our hearts as pastors and leaders start to go, yes. And Paul's going, yes, this is great. They're coming back. I'm rejoicing. He's rejoicing because Titus was part of his world, and Titus is bringing back some good news and regrets. Listen, they're defeated in rejoicing in God and his works in your life. That's how regrets are defeated when you rejoice. And regrets are going to steal your joy. Regrets are going to come in. They're going to torment you like Frankenstein. They're going to taunt you, and they're going to cause your joy not to be the fullest it could possibly be. And Paul's here now in this place. It's a wonderful place of rejoicing because the Corinthians are coming back. They're coming back. I love this. I love the love and the freedom that we see in these final verses here. I love the man Titus, too. Titus was a great guy. A book is written by him or by Paul about him. And so it's, he's a tremendous Christian, very, very much an encouragement to the Apostle Paul. Titus was not a halfway, or Titus always went full guns with Christ and with Paul. And so he's mentioned here in sacred scripture. Think about the devastating effects of regrets, not only on you, but on your family members. Think about the impact that it's had far and wide, right? Not just you, but on others, your kids. Your kids. I think sometimes I get more concerned for the kids. Make sure that you make decisions that are godly. Make sure that you're making decisions from here on out that are righteous before God. Make sure that you're making decisions that you're an example for your kids. I've been a youth pastor a long time, probably 25, a long time. I was a youth pastor a long time. And I'm telling you, the parents that made the decisions away from God, not vertical, all horizontal, all about themselves, it never ended well with their kids. So they all came to me, and they wanted me to fix the kids. 
because I was a youth pastor. And I wanted to say to dad, listen, you're pastor dad. You pastor your kids. But you're the paid professional. Yeah, that's part of the whole modern Christianity thing that is a little wacky. Dads need a pastor. Pastor your kids. Make some decisions now. Get past the regrets. Don't beat yourself up. Don't punish yourself. Jesus went to the cross for your punishment. But please lead the way for your kids. Moms, too. But I think about the kids and how they'll go sideways. Some of the kids in this room will go sideways. Some of them we won't see again spiritually. A lot of that has to do with mom and dad. Making decisions or not making decisions that they should make. Some of you are pushing the the rewind button on your regrets. You're pushing it over and you're pushing it over and you're pushing it over again. And Paul's not doing that. The Corinthians aren't doing that in these final verses in this seventh chapter. Notice he says there, I have complete confidence in you. It's towards the end there. I have complete confidence in you. What a great statement that is. In other words, he's saying it's all good, no regrets. And this is how regrets are handled. I had a picture. I don't think it's going to be on there, but I had a picture that I wanted to show you of Frankenstein, and and there's a little girl that he's having a conversation with. If you saw the old movie with Boris Karloff, it's in that movie. And so you see that Frankenstein and this little girl having a conversation. Of course, people are freaking out, like, oh, man. You know, and so I think what's happened to some of you, if you've made friends with Frankenstein. Is he up there? He made the screen. It's like, you can't make friends with a monster. If you don't revisit, you don't return, and you don't rejoice in the conformity to God's principles and power, and all he said to you in his will, you can't make friends with regret. Something has to change today. And some of you are saying, you know what, I can make friends with my Frankenstein. I'll just live the rest of my life like that. It won't happen. It won't happen. So, real quick, you revisit honesty, honestly, with truth. You return vertically to a God-focused life. And then you rejoice in conformity to God's purposes and his will. I love this. God's truth had gotten a grip on the Corinthians. It had given them this freedom from regrets. It caused them to go vertical once again. They repented. They returned in their relationship with the Apostle Paul and with Titus. Such a good thing that's happening here. They were freed from the monster of Frankenstein with this honesty. Honesty. They were honest about what they had done to Paul, what they'd done to God, what they'd done to the church. And then they returned, and then they were rejoicing. Here's how they did it. They applied grace and truth, forgiveness and mercy. That's how they did it. And that's what we do, too. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Thank you for enduring all of the technical difficulties. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you can overcome anything, not just crackling in a microphone or anything like that. There's so much more that could be said about distractions, Lord. And the enemy would want to take the seed of the word of God, especially on this one, and cause people to be friends with Frankenstein the rest of their earthly life. And so, God, we pray that you would help many in this room to be free from the regret, from the things that they have decided many years ago that hurt a lot of people, hurt themselves. May they take the truth of the word of God and, and take it to their mind and to their heart 
cause them, Lord, to go back to that place of verticality, of living for your glory, for your honor, for your namesake. And may they rejoice. May there be a lot of people making some decisions during this song, during this prayer time, so that they can get to the place of rejoicing again, so that Frankenstein's monster will not taunt them anymore, so that they'll be free from the hauntings, Lord, that they've been carrying for all of these years. God, we pray that you would help them not to punish themselves anymore. Help them, God, to get to that place of freedom. Help them to realize, Lord Jesus, that you went to the cross, that you were punished for our sins. Help them, Lord, not to try to take your place and punish themselves for some of the decisions that they made against their wife or against their husband or their kids or someone else. Help them to go to the cross. That's about as vertical as we can get. Help them to go back to Jesus and saying, oh, Jesus, I want to be free from Frankenstein. Help me, God, to just realize more and more that you died and I don't have to punish myself. I don't have to live in these regrets. I don't have to be tormented any longer. I can rejoice because your principles and your power and your, your word, your will is what I want to follow. God, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. There will be many right now praying these prayers, turning to you, and getting past this. We pray against this Frankenstein's monster, Lord. We pray, God, that there will be different people the rest of this week and the rest of their life as a result of the word of God. We pray, Lord, that these principles and truths that we looked at, Lord, would go deep inside of our heart, deep inside, Lord. Can I encourage you through this song, as we stand, worship the Lord, but worship in freedom if you've made decisions. Worship the Lord. Give him glory. Go vertical. Give him the passion. Give him your heart. Help him or help. This will help you, I should say, to get to that place of freedom from Frankenstein. Let's all stand to our feet.